Some of you have contacted me asking if I'm okay. And rest assured, yes, everything's good. I just took the last four months off from podcasting. That's all. Welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. And for those of you listening in real time, you realize I have been absent for the last four months. And the beauty of podcasting means that for many of you, (laughs) this is just simply episode 85, the one that follows episode 84. Well, I've had some time off, and let me just say that just because I have not been doing podcasting doesn't mean at all that I have not been doing anything. I've had some stuff going on. And so here's a quick list before we get into the rest of the podcast. First, all the way back in September, my goal was to finish recording and producing the audiobook for Rethinking Rest. And I'm happy to say I got that done. The book, Rethinking Rest, the audiobook version, is now available exclusively on Audible. And so I would just encourage you, especially if you're one that has enjoyed the podcast but doesn't read very much, that may be a good option for you. So the audiobook, that's number one on my list of things I've been doing. Secondly, I had a minor surgery. <laughs> it was gallbladder surgery. And a little backstory, last summer after eating two just very delicious pieces of pepperoni pizza. I had what the ER doctor called a gallbladder attack, and it frankly scared me. (laughs) It was really painful. And even though at the time I was convinced I was going to die, the doctor assured me that this is quite common. And a couple different options he gave me, I could either get the gallbladder removed or I could look forward to several more trips to the ER over the rest of my life. So I opted to get the gallbladder removed. And just two weeks after that, my mom, my 84-year-old mother, fell and broke her hip. Now, you might remember I interviewed my mom back in episode 71. We talked about my birthday, uh, the day I was born. Well, mom fell, broke her hip, and had surgery. She spent a couple weeks in a rehab facility learning how to walk again, and now is settled in a care facility very close to where we live. I check in on her often, and almost every time I see her, she gives me a little list of things to do. Mom's doing well. Well, after getting mom settled, the holidays happened, And here we are in the new year. So that's what I've been up to. What about you? From the number of downloads of the podcast, it seems like some of you may have been catching up on previous episodes that you may have missed. Or maybe you just revisited an episode that previously caught your attention. That's good, because we've covered a lot of ground in the last two and a half years. And I look forward to this coming year. We're going to get back to our roots, and we're going to be going through a book of the Bible very soon. 
Over the last few months, we've also seen the headlines and we've watched the videos of the war in the Middle East. So back in October, if you're not familiar, Hamas invaded Israel and in retaliation, Israel invaded Gaza. They sent troops into parts of the West Bank and they've been defending themselves from attacks in the north. And I only mention this for a couple of reasons. Number one, Dr. John Walton and I had a trip planned for February of this year. That's next month in real time. And we've obviously had to postpone that trip until 2025. So I'll have more details on that in future episodes. Actually working with the land agents right now to get uh, new dates secured. And I'll let you know more about that as I know more. But it's during this time that we've just, you know, had a chance to watch this war play out and how it's progressed that I've been reminded how awful war is. I mean, the painful trauma caused by both sides of this conflict, that's going to be revisited for years to come. It's a generational conflict. And that doesn't seem to have any quick and easy solutions. As somebody that's traveled to the Holy Land several times, I've taken groups over there, I've been in and through the land, I would just like to invite you to maybe rethink this modern conflict uh, from at least one new set of eyes. And I say that because I know that it's more than common, especially in the United States, to look at modern-day Israel and because it shares a name and places with the biblical text, somehow we feel like God has chosen to be on only one side of this ongoing conflict. And with that perspective, some people believe that any amount of retaliation is just justified. So I just want to put this in perspective a little bit. The initial invasion back on October 7th of last year In that invasion, Hamas killed approximately 1,200 people. Many of those were civilians. And as of the date I'm recording this, the health ministry in Gaza reports that 23,000 people have died in Gaza since the war began. Another 6,700 people are missing, presumed dead in the rubble. So if all of those missing are actually dead, we're approaching 30,000 people within Gaza that have been killed. Now, about those numbers, Israel claims that only 7,000 of the 23,000 who have died were fighting for Hamas. And in addition to that, the health ministry in Gaza estimates that 70% of those killed have been women and children. In late December, it was estimated that eight thousand children and 6,200 civilian women had died. And I'll be the first to admit that it is sometimes really just hard to connect with numbers that happen so far away from where we live. And you may have even grown up in a context that suggests that God has picked one side over another in this conflict. But as much as I've studied the Bible and As many times as I've traveled and led trips to Israel, I'm convinced that God isn't smiling about what's going on in this recent conflict. 
And I'm just going to propose, I don't know what perspective you're bringing to the table on this conflict or events in Israel, modern day Israel, and how they might play into your belief system. But modern evangelicalism has developed a really strange way of thinking about war in general and wars involving the modern state of Israel in particular. Somewhere along the way, we've convinced ourselves that God is somehow pleased when humanity does battle with each other. And don't get me wrong, while war seems to be an inevitability in this fallen world, I think the vision given to John, the one he records at the end of the book of Revelation, is a good reminder of God's goal for humanity. It's at the end of Revelation that John saw a new heaven and a new earth. It describes a preview of God's fully assembled kingdom. And what I'd like to do is just read an excerpt out of my book from chapter 1, just to maybe reframe this idea for you a little bit. In Revelation 21 and 22, this new creation is described with several interesting features. We read about one of those features right away. The new creation doesn't have any sea. We see that in Revelation 21.1. Now, this is sometimes understood as the lack of any large bodies of water. (laughs) But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, wild areas of the world were understood as liminal space. Now, liminal is a term that describes an in-between state or a transitional boundary between two places. I often think of the threshold of my front door as liminal space. When I'm in that space, I'm neither fully in my house, nor have I yet arrived outside. I'm in liminal land. And the ancient Near Eastern understanding of the world outside of Eden would have included a liminal realm where God's rule was yet to be established or maintained. This, according to John Walton, he says, the liminal realm existed on the periphery of creation and was home to dangerous animals, harsh and inedible plants, hostile terrain such as deserts, mountains, or the sea. So we can conclude that in the biblical world of Genesis chapter 2, the space outside the garden would have still included liminal land that would need to be subdued and brought under God's rule. But in Revelation chapter 21, the absence of a sea is likely describing a world where all the liminal space within the creation has been brought under his authority. The end state, the one in Revelation, describes a world where the rule of Eden has spread and consumed the entire creation. So in the end, the assembly of the kingdom is complete. But that's at the end of the process. The theologian Gregory Beale says it this way, Because Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule over all the earth, it is plausible to suggest that they were to extend the geographical boundaries of the garden until Eden covered the whole earth. They were on the primeval hillock of hospitable Eden, outside of which lay the inhospitable land. 
they, Adam and Eve, were to extend the smaller livable area of the garden by transforming the outer chaotic region into a habitable territory. So that thought from chapter one of my book. And let me just say that I think this is a perspective that many Bible-believing people just, they don't understand it. It's not just that the picture of the end is devoid of chaos. It's that the mandate for humanity, now get this, the mandate for humanity given at the beginning that we're still under has always been to reduce the chaos. We are to take the rest that God provides, the way of living that brings life back into the world, and we are to spread that godly rest into all the parts of the world in which we have the opportunity to live. That mandate suggests that we, as believers, are to be first and foremost agents of rest in a world of chaos. And somewhere along the way, it seems that our theology may have strayed just a bit. Many of us have become very comfortable with the idea that believers are sometimes called to be agents of chaos within the world, and that somehow it's okay to use whatever means are necessary to try and create the change that we think God wants to accomplish. Let me just remind you, that's not the way the story goes. That's not the path to the end. Our mandate as humanity is to bring rest. The rest that we experience is we put Jesus's yoke upon our back, the, the rules that suggest where we should go and how we should do things. As we've put that on our back and experience the rest that comes out of that, the rest that our soul so desperately needs and desires. It's our mandate as those people to take that idea of rest and spread it to the rest of the world, the world full of chaos that so desperately needs to understand that there's a different way. I mean, just read through Jesus's words and you'll be reminded of the type of order and structure that God's kingdom already has. It doesn't run the way the current world runs. It doesn't have the same rules you learned in school. <laughs> in God's kingdom, the servants, those who are last, the widows, the orphans, and the children, these are the people that hold predominant positions. And our first inclination should be to protect and lift up those radical ideals over any modern theology that would suggest otherwise. Okay, I'm going to climb back down off my soapbox for just a minute here. <laughs> but I don't want to totally abandon the idea, the concept of what our job is as believers, as people that have taken on the covenant of Christ, to experience rest the way God intended his creation to experience it. 
And then realizing what that feels like, our mandate really is to go out into the world of chaos in which we live. Now, that doesn't always mean overseas. That just means in the neighborhoods in which we live, in the churches, in the cities. We have a mandate to bring rest to a city that so desperately is looking for and needs to experience that rest. So again, part of the review of where I've been the last few months, over Labor Day weekend last September, I had the opportunity to lead a breakout session at a weekend retreat in Central Oregon hosted by a group called Centered, people that are centered around the ministry and person of Jesus. The camp was held at the Washington Family Ranch in Central Oregon. It was a great weekend, and I met so many new people. But probably the most significant connection I made wasn't a new one at all. I got reconnected with an old friend, Jeff Vansel. Jeff currently lives in Spokane, Washington. Before that, he led a ministry to students at the University of Washington in Seattle. But before that, Jeff was involved in Young Life in my hometown of Salem, Oregon. He was the area director back when I was in high school. And I'm presuming most people listening to this don't know who Jeff is. Let me just describe him a little bit. Jeff's the kind of guy that remembers your name. Once, back in the mid-90s, that's last century, Jeff and I briefly saw each other at Young Life's Malibu camp in Canada. Jeff was in the line to get onto the boat that had just brought my group up, and we passed by each other. Now, Jeff and I hadn't seen each other for many years at that point. And he saw me at a distance, and this is how he greeted me. He said, well, if it isn't Greg Hall, your parents are Larry and Eleanor, and you used to live on Rafael Street in Kaiser. And I looked at him and I said, it's Jeff, right? <laughs> Jeff's a relational guy. He's the master of connecting people and promoting the kingdom. And over the Labor Day weekend, I got to share with him about my book and how biblical rest is really all about allowing God to lead us to our place to be and into our thing to do. We talked about how Jesus's rest is strangely attached to his yoke, which is an instrument of work. And Jeff suggested that some of what I wrote connected well with some work that he's been doing trying to convince believers that they are called to be agents of change within the cities in which they live. And Jeff shares the perspective that I brought to the table, that God's doing a lot of work inside the four walls of church buildings, but most of his work is happening outside those walls, and that the church should be about creating change, not first and foremost within the church building, but by creating change within the city in which the church building resides. And let me just say that reconnecting with Jeff, it really challenged me. <laughs> it got me thinking that I'm maybe not done discovering the topic of biblical rest. And specifically, let me just kind of map that out for you. Much of my first book was focused on helping discover how the idea of godly rest had been misunderstood, and most of the application I gave was written to individual believers because 
I believe that's where the change first needs to take place. It's the soul, not at rest, that needs to experience that first. But Jeff reminded me that it's just as important to talk about how godly rest plays out within the church, the the group of people that come together, the collected group of those who have attached themselves to Jesus's yoke. And specifically, I started asking questions like, what would it look like if each rendition of the lowercase c church, each local body of believers, what would it look like if each local church were committed to encouraging their members to get out into the city to bring godly rest to the chaos that exists? Would we have to change what we do inside the church walls if the focus of our gatherings were outside the church walls? So, in my time off over the last four months, I've been giving an outline to some of those types of ideas. I've been asking myself, Things like, what types of things prevent the local church, not just from understanding rest, but from helping to spread it? Is the way we've set up church really the most effective way that it could be organized? And I'm wondering, how often are decisions made that encourage the church to exist inside the walls that we've constructed? Instead of going outside those walls, to introduce rest into the cities that are full of chaos. It's the Adam and Eve mandate that I talked about earlier. Are we just trying to hunker down until Jesus comes back? And if that's our perspective on what our role should be within the world in which we live, I think we've misread large portions of the scripture because Jesus isn't calling us. He isn't asking us to wait until he comes back to fix it all. Our mandate as humanity is to first and foremost understand what the rest is that God has given us, and then not be satisfied with experiencing that for ourselves or even the group of believers in which we hang out. Our mandate is to take that rest out into the liminal land around our neighborhood. So let me just ask you a question. Has the theology that you've developed, or maybe the church that you attend, has that taken the church away from the work to which we've been called? Do you really believe that we, as followers of Christ, are called to help introduce rest to a weary world? So, I've got a lot of ideas swimming around in my head. And as I enter into the process of starting to write a second book, a follow-up to my first one, a book that will entertain some of these questions, not just what is rest, but now that we've maybe identified what rest is, what is the mandate that we as believers have? How could that play out? How could church look different than it currently is in order to accomplish that goal? Because I think we've been sidetracked. I worked in a church for 10 years. A lot of the time I felt sidetracked. I felt like I was putting time in to events and programs that were encouraging people not to get out into the city, but to come to the building to build a program. Well, with all these ideas swimming around in my head, one of the things that I would find very helpful is to have a few sounding boards. 
So I'm just going to introduce this idea of a Zoom call once a month. And I would like to have a few people that would be interested in hearing some of the ideas that I have for the second book, giving me some feedback, letting me know how that might play out in your church or how it does play out in former churches that you've attended. And I don't want this to be a large crowd, just a small group of five to 10 people on a Zoom call once a month. It's a time to discuss, get some feedback, brainstorm new thoughts. Does that sound like something you'd like to be a part of? <laughs> Would you like to be in some sort of a beta group like that, helping me work through my next book, which I've, by the way, tentatively titled Rebuilding Rest? If it does, if that's something that sounds interesting, on my websites, RethinkingRest.com and RethinkingScripture.com, there's a connect tab at the top of each page. And if you'd like to be a part of the Rebuilding Rest beta team, that's what I guess I'll call it for now. Just use that connect tab and let me know that you're interested. Just say, hey, I'd like to be a part of the Rebuilding Rest beta team. And that doesn't commit you to anything other than I'll let you know what opportunities are available and you can take part in whatever you'd like to. All that said, I would love to have you helping me in the process. So this was kind of a really random episode, I think you'll agree, talking about a number of different things. But moving forward, I'm not going to just wander around like I did today. I've actually got a plan. So far on the podcast, we've walked our way through each chapter of the Gospel of John and the Book of Acts, and we spent all of last year talking about different aspects of biblical rest. I am happy to announce that this year, 2024, we'll be walking through the Gospel of Matthew. So, what does that mean? The next episode will be an introduction to the Book of Matthew, and then we'll be walking our way through all 28 chapters. Now, I had the opportunity to teach through the book when I was a pastor, and I can't wait to dig down into these stories and help you connect them to the rest of Scripture. And those of you that would like to follow along and actually do it as a Bible study, at RethinkingScripture.com, in the tab bar across the top, I've got studies. If you click on studies, one of the options is the Matthew study. And if you click on that, you've got a whole load of resources available to you. One of those things is chapter-by-chapter lessons with 8 to 10 study questions. If you're interested, you can go ahead and get started on some of those Bible studies. And then as we get to the content in the podcast, you can listen and reflect with me on some of the deeper aspects of that chapter. And it's also a good chance to introduce new people to the podcast. Who do you know that would enjoy a study in the book of Matthew this year? And would you consider inviting them to join us? Well, that's all I got for today. I look forward to the next time we meet. And Lord willing, it won't be another four months before you hear from the Rethinking Scripture podcast.